1: The human immune system is a wonder of nature, designed by evolution to fight intruders to keep us alive. But how well is it faring in the battle against COVID 19? Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Cucquier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show Can you catch COVID 19 more than once?
2: Politicians around the world have been talking about following the science. Unfortunately, the science hasn't told us anything about this. And and we just won't know for at least another year,
1: maybe more. And how might being kind give your immune system a
0: boost? People who are asked to do acts of kindness for others showed changes in their RNA gene expression that were associated with a stronger immune profile.
1: First up, pharmaceutical giant AstraZeneca is preparing to start clinical trials on a treatment for severely ill COVID-19 patients. It's one of many companies hoping that repurposing existing medications can help tackle the pandemic. AstraZeneca has been working with the British government and Cambridge University to supply many of the COVID tests for the nation, but the pressure is on to find drugs that work and find them fast. So how do you run a successful drug company in the age of COVID-19? Pascal Sorio is the chief executive of AstraZeneca. Pascal, welcome to Babbage.
3: Hi, Ken. Great to be with you today.
1: Now, your company is doing a lot in terms of the search for better therapeutic treatments for COVID-19. Tell me more about how you're using drugs in novel
3: ways. I think when you look at this uh, awful disease, you have to look at it in three parts, really. One is the virus itself. Two is the immune response that some patients develop. And in fact, it appears that the immune response is what kills people more than the virus itself. And that a hyperimmune response that creates this huge inflammation of the lungs of patients and sometimes even attack their uh, kidneys and their heart. This is not uh, frequent. I mean, it's a small percentage of patients, but because the virus is very contagious, it ends up affecting a lot of people. And the third part is how do you try to protect the organs, in particular the kidneys and the heart, as you treat patients? So we have uh, approaches in three of those. One is the virus. We are developing a monoclonal antibody, which can be used as a vaccine or as a treatment. Second is the immune response. We're using a calabritinib, calquins, our BTK inhibitor that is used for a certain form of leukemia and approved in many countries already. We're using it to turn off, if you will, or downregulate the inflammatory cascade. It's acting on what you could call a central switch of this inflammatory cascade. So we have very good hope it will be effective. And the third is we're using Farsiga, one of our already commercialized products that has shown benefits in kidneys and heart and protecting them. So we are uh, trialing this in a study done in the United States and Europe to look at whether we can indeed protect the organs. Because one of the issues is if people don't die when they're on the ventilator, how do they come back? I mean, some patients are coming back alive but with damages to their heart and their kidneys. And any effort to protect also key organs, of course, uh, will be very important. What is the timeline for these three different approaches? The monoclonal antibody, we think we will be in the clinic with it by the summer, and therefore we believe we could have a product available by uh, first part of next year, and then it will become a question of how quickly authorities can review and approve this product. But if it works, you would imagine that the review process will be fast, of course. In terms of uh, the immune response, we should have some data within the next uh, six weeks, I would think. And that will be a critical step, right? Because if you can downregulate substantially this inflammatory response, what you will be able to do is to stop patients from being put on a ventilator. So patients might be hospitalized, then they would receive this treatment, which has to be used in severe cases. And then if you stop patients from being put on a ventilator, then a big, big part of the issue is resolved because you're then dealing with a, a viral infection that can be managed. And the third part, the FASIGA trial to protect organs will take a couple of months to get results.
1: Okay. Now, you're working fast, but are you working fast enough? Will you look back in five years' time and think, why did things take so long?
3: Well, actually, I can tell you that um, developing a medicine for a new indication usually takes months and years. So we've been incredibly fast, actually. I mean, I know... You know, for patients who are waiting for a solution, it sounds like it's endless, it takes a long time, but I can tell you by industry standards, it's incredibly fast.
1: Do you think you can maintain that pace once you return to normality? Is this going to be the new normal for the pharmaceutical industry to be able to snap to attention when problems come up? Or are we going to return to a slower pace?
3: Yeah, it's a great question, Ken. And of course, what is happening now is not a sustainable model, if you will, because everybody is on deck, working 24-7. So it's clearly not a sustainable model for the future. But there is a lot of learnings that are coming out of this uh, fast-tracked process, if you will, and should help us, hopefully, be faster in the way we develop uh, drugs in the future. But suddenly, as fast as we are today, it will be difficult. Uh, there are other, other issues in uh, healthcare, of course. And uh, so, you know, we can't be as fast with everything.
1: Now, one of the questions being posed is whether the intellectual property regime is up to snuff in times of crisis. For example, if these treatments work, should you be required to share and license them? What do you think? Is it possible to apply IP in novel ways to address the pandemic right now?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think we should not make problems when there is no issue, really. I mean, the, I think the IP uh, environment is very good to encourage innovation. And to be honest, uh, if we didn't have a regime like this, you would not have a strong pharmaceutical industry that is able to step up to the plate and try to find solution. The efforts that have been put in this fight by all pharmaceutical companies around the world and the level of collaboration between companies... And uh, academia and government has been quite spectacular, quite frankly. And in fact, most companies have said we will share our data and we've done that. And they've said we will actually bring our medicines to patients and make sure that uh, pricing or anything is not a problem for access. If issues came up of supply because of IP, then of course you could have the discussion. But so far, everybody has said we will make sure Everybody can get access. And the only limitation is manufacturing, of course. I mean, if tomorrow someone comes up with a vaccine, you can imagine the demand will be gigantic. And of course, uh, the limitation could be manufacturing capacity, but it would have nothing to do with IP limitations. You know, I think for vaccines, there is an industry agreement that everybody is going to help each other. The first company coming up with a vaccine will then... uh, be able to access capacity from the entire industry to manufacture the product.
1: You bring up the issue of pricing. It's a good one. How do you price a therapeutic or a vaccine for COVID-19? There's a crisis, there's a demand and a market, but there's also the question of fairness. People can't always pay.
3: What's the responsible way to price something? In terms of pricing, we will definitely price uh, this product uh, at cost of goods where necessary to make sure that uh, patients benefit from this drug. Industry has stepped up here not really looking for a commercial opportunity, but simply to help and show that we can collectively make a difference and deal with this disease.
1: And a vaccine,
3: who do you think is going to win? Ah, <laughs> There are many players and uh, I uh, hope that someone wins quickly. As you know, there is a couple of vaccines that are leading the way. One is by Moderna, a Boston based company with a new technology called modified RNA. And uh, there's two adenovirus based vaccines, uh, one developed by Johnson & Johnson, the other one by the University of Oxford, and that are also quite well advanced. And in fact, the University of Oxford adenovirus based technology is more advanced than the J&J vaccine. And then uh, other companies are also working on it. Uh, uh, Sanofi in, in in collaboration with JSK, uh, Takeda, and, and a number of other companies. Pascal, I know you're a sporting man. So where do you bet? What do you think's going to win? Uh, to be honest, in that instance, I don't really mind who is going to win. So. I just hope one of those uh, well-advanced vaccines is going to come soon. I think the University of Oxford vaccine is well-advanced and has a good chance to be first. I think the Moderna mRNA vaccine has a good chance to be first and hopefully j follows soon. Actually, you know, the reality is that I believe we will need several vaccines because the demand will be quite large. And uh, the more vaccines you have, the better it is in terms of uh, addressing this demand. Otherwise... Capacity, again, could be an issue, and supply could be an issue. So the more vaccines will work, the better it is. Pascal Sorio, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. Good being with you today.
1: The search for therapeutic solutions and a vaccine for COVID-19 may be more important than first thought. The World Health Organization has called into question whether getting infected makes you immune to reinfection.
0: We expect people that are infected with COVID-19 to develop a response that has some level of protection. What we don't know right now is how strong that protection is and if that's seen in everybody that is infected and for how long that lasts. It's
1: a big problem. Insufficient immunity could have huge consequences for returning to normality. The expectation is, and the assumption has
2: been until now, that if you've been infected um, with the virus that causes COVID-19, then your body's immune system has responded in the right way and you are therefore immune.
1: Alec Jha is the
2: Economist science correspondent. Uh, that's how other viruses and pathogens work. Um, that's how the immune system works. Now, that's a big assumption. It's expected that there might be some immunity to the virus if you've, if you've had it and recovered. But we actually don't know how effective it is. We actually don't know have any details about how long it would last because this virus is
1: so new. Okay, so first talk to me about the science. Why did we assume that you could become immune to it? What's going on in the body and why is it not working this time?
2: Our understanding of the body's immune system is that if a pathogen sort of invades, then your immune system responds in various ways. One of them is just to send lots of white blood cells to any foreign invader and trying to destroy all the, the virus or or bacterium or whatever it is that's coming in. And then you have a series of Other immune responses, things called B cells, which come from the bone marrow, they will um, create antibodies that will try and either neutralize the virus um, or mark it for destruction by other cells. And then there's a bunch of T cells, which come from the thymus, um, and what they do is to identify body cells that have been infected by a virus or pathogen and just kill them uh, to stop the spread of the virus. And between these various responses, the immune system usually can stop a person getting uh, severely ill. And once you've got over the infection, the immune system will remember. This is how any infection works. This is how vaccinations work, in fact. If you challenge a person with an infection, then the body, the immune system remembers. And if that same infection comes along later in life, then uh, you'll be protected. Can you give me some examples of that? Different pathogens elicit different types of immune response and the length of those immune responses is different. So for example, if you get a measles vaccine or if you get measles, then your protection is is lifelong. If you get flu however, then your protection is around five to six months. It's not very long at all. That's how we understand the immune system to work. However, when you get a new virus coming along like SARS-CoV-2, you can assume all these things and it might be that it works in exactly the same way But science isn't like that. Science requires you to actually have evidence, to watch the virus in action for a couple of years, to see how long the immunity lasts. And we've only known about this virus
1: for four months, so we can't tell you anything about how long the immunity to the virus will last. Now, Alec, we're seeing some evidence out of Asia that, in fact, we might not have an immunity. Tell me about what we're seeing in terms of those papers.
2: So there's a couple of cases um, in Japan and about more than 100 in South Korea where the public health authorities there Monitored people who had had COVID 19 infections, who had recovered, in other words, had had several um, negative tests for the virus, and then a few days later they were reinfected. Now, let's try and understand what's going on here. It could be that they're reinfected really quickly and that these people have no immunity. Now, that's probably unlikely because as soon as you've cleared the virus from your system, you still got these immune cells which recognise the virus. And it would be very, very unlikely that's, you know just a few days after clearing a virus that you'd get reinfected because you've still got that immune system protection. The questions around immunity that I'm talking about are about whether it lasts for six months, eight months, nine months, a year, two years later. In the case of South Korea and Japan, these reinfections have happened. They have been recorded. What we need to understand from there now is, are the tests correct? Is it that there's a problem with the tests? Perhaps... The tests somewhere in the middle, which proved them to be negative, they were mishandled or they just didn't detect very low levels of the virus or something. Or it could be that um, there, there is some sort of immune system problem going on, but we won't know that until we know much, much more about those individual cases. And really, it's only been a few weeks since they've been reported, so we should be hoping to find out more in the coming months.
1: But you can also be a vector of transmission. So that throws a big question mark on the lockdown exit strategies. If people are not immune, can we really open up our economies?
2: Yeah, that's the big question. And the one that I think people need to grapple with a bit more than perhaps we have been doing. We've been assuming that once you're infected by SARS-CoV-2 that um, and you're, you've recovered that, you know, healthcare workers can go back to the wards where people are being treated for this, or that perhaps we can give people immunity passports. Now, this would be essentially a certificate to say that you've been infected by SARS-CoV-2 uh, you've cleared the virus and therefore you're immune and you can go about your business um, in the world um, without worrying about reinfection. Um, there's a massive uncertainty about whether that's a good idea, just because, um, as the World Health Organization has said, we don't know if being infected gives you uh, a long-term immunity. It's massively uncertain. Um, politicians around the world have been talking about following the science. Unfortunately, the science hasn't told us anything about this, and, and we just won't know for at least another year, maybe more. And so what we have to do is just try and hedge our bets by trying out several strategies for exit, um, which don't also involve relying on immunity.
1: OK, Alok, thank you very much. You're very welcome, Ken. You can read more about the uncertainty over immunity to COVID-19 in the upcoming edition of The Economist. And if you're not already a subscriber, you can become one. Please visit economist.com slash radio offer. There you can begin a subscription for 12 issues for just $12 or
0: £12.
1: It has long been known that loneliness can be bad for your health. In fact, research has shown that it rivals obesity and possibly smoking as a risk. But as COVID-19 forces people to spend more time apart, there's a danger that feeling lonely may actually weaken people's immune system.
0: Researchers have been showing that loneliness is associated with uh, essentially a a depressed immune profile. So uh, when you're lonely, your immune system is, um, is not as strong, which is... Of course, uh, kind of a, a double-edged uh, negative in the, you know during the pandemic.
1: Sonia Libromirski is a psychologist at the University of California at Riverside.
0: It's really a very big problem because um, to avoid uh, the coronavirus, we are being told to basically uh, stay in California, where I am, at least six feet from other people and to sort of shelter in place. And and yet, um, if that kind of isolation, self-isolation makes us lonely, then that depresses our immune system, which is, which is what we need to um, sort of fight off viruses as well as bacteria. It's a little bit of a vicious cycle.
1: But address it, we must, because by the time we all come out of lockdown, there will be people who have been lonely and who are now going to ha- find it harder to sort of reintegrate into society because they're going to be suspicious of other people because that loneliness has had a physical manifestation on their health and also on their cognitive abilities to forge ties.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, before, actually, I, I do want to say that there is a, a potential silver lining, though. People who are lonely feel very much alone, like they are the only ones feeling the way that they do. And then when everyone now has to stay home and be alone, it's possible that lonely people actually might feel in a way, less alone, because kind of like we're all in the same boat. So that actually is an open question. On the other hand, we already are seeing anecdotal evidence that especially older people are feeling even more isolated. So I agree that it is very important to try to understand how we can kind of address this loneliness problem.
1: Your research has looked at some of these issues, hasn't it?
0: My research is on how doing acts of kindness for others, how when people help other people, how that can... um, boost their well-being, to make them happier, make them feel more connected with others. And, and for a number of years, I've been thinking that perhaps one way to help people who are lonely is not to sort of throw kindness at them or throw friends at them, but actually kind of do it the other way around, um, ask them to help others. So So when a lonely person actually takes initiative to help someone else, then they're the ones who are going to benefit. And so we've done... Studies where we randomly assign people to either do acts of kindness for others or maybe do acts of kindness for yourself or engage in various neutral kinds of activities to see what psychological and genomic effect that has on individuals.
1: And what was the effect?
0: So we have found, again, in a number of studies that, first of all, that asking people to do acts of kindness for others makes them happier and, and more connected to the people that they're helping, and that's a very important to understand in itself. And then um, a few years ago, we kind of took this a step further, and we did a kindness intervention. We call them kindness interventions. They're kind of like clinical trials, but instead of randomly assigning some people to take a particular drug, we randomly assigned some people to do acts of kindness or not. We did a study where we collected blood spots, basically blood from people before and after the kindness intervention. We found that People who were asked to do acts of kindness for others showed changes in their blood, changes in their RNA gene expression that were associated with a stronger immune profile, basically, we found evidence of downregulation of pro-inflammatory genes. Now, more inflammation is bad, so downregulation of pro-inflammatory genes is a good thing. So we found that only in the group that was asked to do acts of kindness for others. We also had a group that was asked to do acts of kindness for themselves. So like, kind of like, you know, have a nice lunch, you know, take a nap, get a massage. And that group did not show shifts in RNA gene expression.
1: So being kind actually makes you happier
0: yes there are actually quite a few studies now showing that when people are kind to others or generous to others they become happier and we actually have a study where we compared the givers and the receivers so i mean if i'm I'm the giver i'm helping you the receiver Um, the receiver gets happy right away but the giver's happiness lasts longer
1: as people wait for this period of self-isolation to end Many of them have turned to online socializing to tackle feelings of loneliness. For example, video calls like the one we're doing right now. Is this an effective way of dealing with the problem? Does online virtual interactions
0: work? You know, you could argue that human beings were hardwired to interact face-to-face. You know, we use cues that are available face-to-face uh, involving not just eye contact, but gesture and synchrony and touch and smell some of those but not all of them are available on say video calls um and uh, I think we've probably all noticed that online interactions are more exhausting in a way, right? After kind of Zoom calls, you feel much more tired than after a, a in-person meeting, for example. And I think in part it's because we're just, our brain is sort of working overtime to process all these cues. Um, so my lab has been studying, you know, well, uh, what if you ask people to um, reach out to others and help others sort of online as opposed to in person? And we actually have some mixed findings. So we have a study that shows that, Face to face kindness was associated with sort of higher increases in satisfaction with life or well-being than digital kindness. And digital kindness, I mean, basically maybe reaching out to someone on Facebook and thanking them, or sending someone a gift certificate, or sort of something that's sort of not not face to face. And that makes sense because you you feel, I think, more connected to the other person. They feel more connected and appreciative of you when you're when you're face to face. Generally, I guess the pattern is that in person kind acts are more powerful, more impactful, but we are finding that even digital kindness can also um, increase well-being. So I think both are important, but just it's a little bit more powerful when things are uh, in person.
1: Sonia Lubomirsky, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. While you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and from my linen closet in London,